All right, turn with me, if you would, again, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. As we conclude the first section of Revelation, which was the first three chapters in the prologue to the seven churches, I have adjusted my outline a bit, um, which is probably not the last time it's going to happen. Revelation is a complex book. And um, I wanted you to see as I updated this outline that the seven cycles are still intact. Um, You can see that there is a prologue, which is really the introduction to the seven churches. This reminds us who this letter is written to. And as we transition from chapter three into four, that's not going to change. It doesn't automatically go from the seven churches to just random people that we're down talking to. This is still addressed to the seven churches. Then we'll see these seven cycles that we will get into progressively as we go forward. And then the last chapter, 21 and 22, is really the epilogue, if you will, the revelation. Um, There are so many different pictures that, that just overwhelm you as you read chapter four and then we get into chapter five um what do we make of it there's a lot of visual um stimuli here in revelation chapter four and not very long ago and it's been a while since i had flown but i had the privilege of flying for work and went to rdu which is uh, a growing airport Flew from RDU to Austin International, and then I saw what a big airport looked like. Um, gigantic. And the amount of people, when you get there, you step off the plane, and you start walking around the airport is, is just a bit overwhelming if you live in the middle of the sticks in North Carolina. It's like, who touched me? And there's a lot of people buzzing around you. and um, You see people scattering for luggage. You see people scattering for food. There's crying kids. There's just all sorts of chaos. And you're thinking, man, I need to get out of here. And this analogy, by the way, is not my own. It's I I borrowed it from Ern Poitras, who writes in his book, The Returning King. He uses this analogy as we transition from chapter three to four to remind us that John is being summoned from the airport to the control tower. So if you're in the lobby or what do you call it? The the terminal and you see all this chaos around you, people milling from place to place, it looks like ants. And you think, how is there a purpose and direction and reason in all of this? And then you go up to, a tower and you see planes that are perfectly on time. Now we know that these days are not perfectly on time, but you get the analogy, right? We see order out of the chaos. And that's what we're seeing in chapter four here. Chapter four will set the tone for the rest of the book. It is intended for us as we with John are called up into the throne room to let this chapter temper everything that we see hereafter. Um, From the control tower, decrees have been made, orders have been obeyed, plans uh, that have been laid out in wisdom are executed, and God is sovereignly and providentially ruling and working all things after the counsel of his will. We only tend to see the disconnectedness, right? We tend to see what seems like on the surface is chaos. But John, just like us, has to have his perspective changed. And that's what chapter four is. It's a shifting of perspective. So, um, Jesse, if you'll go to the next slide, um, there's a chapter outline here. We're going to cover the first three points this morning. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll we'll look at um, the final three points. And I want you to see that I've used a prepositional phrase for nearly every outline or nearly every point on the outline. And the purpose is this. The word throne is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. 
47 times. You think God's trying to communicate a point 47 different times. So everything in chapter four, and we'll see in chapter five, centers, emanates, comes from the throne of God, and more specifically, him that is on the throne. It's not so much about the throne itself, but it's about God seated on the throne. Um, point number one, introduction, observations, themes, and context. There is a shifting scene here, but it's not a disjointed shifting of scenes. We had the first three um, chapters of the book addressing very specific churches and letters to the churches. But notice that it constantly reminded us that it, that it was a letter to the churches, plural. Every instance where we see a letter written to a specific church, it was to, to all of the churches, um, which tells us it was for our context and benefit today. This, this chapter four is still written to the churches, and we'll see in chapter four a continuation of some of the themes that were laid down in the early chapters in the letters to the seven churches. For example, chapter three, verse one, told us about the seven spirits of God. We just read that, didn't we, in chapter four. Um, chapter three, verse five, told us about the saints in white garments. We just read that again, chapter four. Chapter three, verse 21, talks about the fact that those who overcome will be seated on the throne with God. What do we find in chapter four? The 24 surrounding the throne. We see in chapter three, verse eight, the saints with crowns. In chapter three, verse 20, we see the open door. In verse um, Chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 20, we see the, the picture of the open door. So there, this is a continuation of the same theme. So just to, to, to be sure that we understand that, it's not a, a severing of the message, if you will. This, there's continuity here with the scripture. I also want you to see that in chapter 1, if you turn back there for just a minute, the other reason I, I believe there's a, a continuation of thought and theme here, if you look in chapter 1, verse 12, John, after his introduction, says, he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, coming from a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John turns, expecting to see the source of the, vo the voice. Instead, where do we find him by description located in this prophetic vision? What does he see? I don't, it's, um, and of course, this is exactly where, right, as we were there, we have a picture, um, and you can Google it, but in the holy place, right outside the holy of holies, we see the seven branch lampstand, which is the picture that John has when he turns around to hear the voice, and he sees Christ walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks, which are the seven churches, so the visual here that the early church, especially those who were Jews and had a, a thorough understanding of, of the Old Testament, would have immediately recognized where, where he was in, in this vision. When we start chapter four, he will go from here. So there's a continuation of the thought. Where do we find ourselves as we start chapter four? In the throne room. And so there's a, there's a transition from John, the Holy of Holies. Where is, uh, where is Christ at this point in this picture? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 3, there is a declaration from Jesus. Look at Revelation 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So where is Jesus? As I 
Yes, he is. And Jesse talked about this. It's funny how our Bible study and message continue to overlap. We should stop coordinating. Um, verse 22 of Revelation 3, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 4 shows us the Father and the Holy Spirit in chapter 4. And then we see Jesus pictured in chapter 5. But the picture of Revelation 4 is the throne room where Christ is reigning. There's a centrality of theme here. We see the throne from different perspectives. Chapter 4 begins with an elevated view of the throne room. The voice that John hears as chapter 4 begins tells him to come up. And what is Christ communicating to the church here? What is the theme? What is the thought being communicated here as John has this vision of the throne room, despite all of the chaos, the turmoil, the judgment, and the tragedy? And there will be lots of that following chapter 4 and 5. As we begin to roll into the judgment of God, and we see some horrific visuals of what is to come for humanity the, the reminder to the church, and this is crucial if we get nothing else, be encouraged and get this truth. God is on his throne and he is ruling. That's important for us. And that's the essence of what we want to talk about this morning. This chapter, chapter four, is to help us get that truth. That God is ruling and reigning now, not in the future. Not in the past, but now. He's always reigned, by the way. He is reigning now, and he will reign in the future. So the picture of Revelation chapter 4 is not futuristic. It is eternity now, if that makes any sense. Um, and it's, a, it's incredibly important and encouraging for us, because as we face all sorts of things in this life, the comfort, the solace for us is that God is sovereignly ordaining and working all things together for our good. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus and every believer who reads this, in whom or in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who does what? Works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is none other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. Let my salvation, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, Israel, my glory. One of the things that jumps out of me about that passage in Isaiah chapter 46 is God says, calling a bird of prey from the east. This is a prophetic picture that Isaiah is writing about, and commentators believe that the bird of prey that he's referring to is Cyrus from Persia, who eventually will siege Babylon, and he will release the Jews in captivity. But one of the things that's interesting, and you will pick up on this, I think, is is an eagle or a bird of prey a clean or an unclean animal? Unclean. What is God saying here? I will call a bird of prey 
from the east. Think about that for a second. Leviticus eleven thirteen says, "And you shall, or in these you shall be test among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture." I want you to know this, and Mark touched on this in our Bible study this morning. God is not limited by the tools at His disposal. What did He use for Absalom? A tree, and his hair. Um, he will use, and this is God and his divine wisdom and his sovereign plan, will use the wicked, the unclean, to accomplish his will. Think about that. Balaam's donkey. All right? He will do this all while maintaining absolute, uncompromised holiness. Now, I can't fully explain all that. Other than to say, just like Joseph said, when his brother sold him into slavery into Egypt, what you meant for my evil, God meant for my good. So God is sovereignly using even unclean tools. See Satan and Job. What does God say to Satan? Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And, and Satan's like, well, yeah. Look at what you've done to protect them. And God gives Satan authority to put Job through the ringer. And guess what? Satan fully intended to destroy him. There was nothing about Satan and Job where, where Satan is pulling any punches on Job. He wants to, like Jesus told Peter, he, Simon, Satan desires to have you to sift you as wheat. That's not a, an act of love. So Satan is actively trying to destroy Job. But who is sovereign over all of that? God is. And God sets the boundaries of, of Satan's testing against Job and says, you can go this far and no further. And he protects him. So with the intent of the wicked one, Cyrus didn't have Israel's best interest at heart. He just wanted to destroy his arch enemy. Babylon. <clears throat> know this. God is not limited by the tools at his disposal. And I think it's important for us to remember that when we pat ourselves on the back because the Lord is using us. Ever thought about that? Well, the Lord is using my life in a mighty way. Mm, 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 mm. If he can use Balaam's donkey, he can use anything, and he does. We need to be careful there. Revelation 17, verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is, is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. There's a picture. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose, being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast till the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Even the plots and the schemes of the, the wicked are sovereignly controlled and dictated by God's providential care. J.I. Packer says this, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. To know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilized the saints. We also see by way of theme and context, we, we talked about this, we go behind the veil. There is a sense here when we step into chapter four that we should be struck by awe and wonder. And this is lost on us, isn't it? Have you guys ever thought to yourself, um, they're out of good ideas for movies? Why? Well, because we've kind of seen it all, haven't we? How many more superheroes can they make? Movie, movies can they make? 
I mean, they keep doing different breakoffs and different branches to chase, but there's no new good ideas that we see in entertainment. We're, we're bored. We've expanded the horizon as far as we go. We have lost in our culture a sense of awe and wonder. Good ideas are used up. And there's nothing in art or movies or entertainment that can manufacture or paint a picture of what we're about to be shown in Revelation chapter 4. We're seeing behind the curtain. We're entering the Holy of Holies with John in this vision. And there's nothing that we can do or say to adequately describe what it's like. If we were to truly see it as it was, we would have the same um, the same response that prophets of old have had, which is to fall flat on their face as they are in the presence of God. What, what we'll see here is, and we'll get into this more next week, but this is very much like Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees in the temple a vision of the Holy One high and lifted up. And the net takeaway for Isaiah when he saw that vision of God was his innate sinfulness. Um, our culture is very much hung up on materialism. And, I, and by that, there's a dual meaning there. Obviously, materialism is stuff we get with money. That's a given. But by materialism, I'm talking about the doctrine that nothing exists except for matter and its movements and modifications. That is the only thing that exists is the material. And so that's where atheists and progressives are mock, will mock Christians because they say, well, you take a literal view of the Bible. Therefore, Genesis chapter one can't be true because it's outside of the laws of nature. How can someone, God, speak something into existence? How do you, how do you create matter? right? It's outside of the laws of nature. Therefore, it can't be true. How about the flood, the parting of the Red Sea? That defies gravity, so it couldn't have happened. And so Christians will try and, well, the wind blew, and it was a sandbar, and, you know, we try to make all these sort of nuanced uh, compromises because it can't possibly be like the scripture says it is. Right. Therefore, that is why we have Christian evolution. Well, God set the wheels in motion because it can't possibly have been that he said, let there be light. and Boom. There was light. No, that can't possibly have happened. God is showing us the invisible, the spiritual reality. What did Jesus tell those that he preached the gospel of the kingdom to? The kingdom of God comes not with observation. He told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see, nor can you understand the kingdom of God. Now, just because you can't see it, does that mean it's not real? No. It's a very real present reality. And we, we miss this sometimes because we get stuck in this material mindset where if, if, if we're not seeing it, it's not happening. It's the same thing with spiritual warfare, isn't it? I was talking to somebody about that yesterday and the reality of demons. And we think, oh, that, that happens in faraway mission fields. No, they're real. They're real. They have names. They have ranks. They have different levels of authorities. And they have real jobs to do which is the undermining of the body of Christ to do everything they can to destroy God's work in his kingdom. But we don't see it. So therefore, it can't be real, right? No. It's just as much a reality, even though it is spiritual. And we got to be careful that we don't miss that. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, Jesus told his disciples. The other thing that will come out as we look at this is Worship as it is intended to be. Worship as it is intended to be. We struggle with worship now. Why? Well, guess what? We're still sinners, aren't we? Sin still besets us. Is our heart always right? 
when we pick up God's word to read it, is our heart always in tune when we sing that hymn to worship God? No, it's not. Revelation 4 shows us a glimpse of what worship is as it ought to be. All worship is done in the context of a three times declared holy, holy, holy God. And we see God extolled in the throne room as the creator. How should this perspective from the throne room impact our view and our perspective on worship? It should shape our view of worship. It should shape our view of God. And we'll, we'll get into that. It's incredibly important. Uh, because God is ordained that in the body of Christ, in the here and now, in this world, we get to come together corporately to worship him. It is a foretaste, guys. Think about this. What we do together collectively as a body of Christ is a foretaste in all of its brokenness of what we will have there. I was uh, went to a conference a few weeks ago. and. We're a very small church, and you hear a thousand people singing together. It's something else, isn't it? It's amazing. And, and it's, it makes you perk up as you, as you think about it. I'm part of this huge crowd. Well, so are we. We're just a piece of the body of Christ here. But what we have is not to be overlooked. It's not to be diminished. Point number two, near the throne, we see the invitation. Verse one, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must, must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. After this, after these things, and you see the Greek there on your, your slide, the statement is to show us that, as I mentioned before, this is a shifting of scenes and perspective, but it's not a new book. It's not a, a new revelation, but an expanding of an existing revelation. There remains continuity here. He says, I looked and behold, and you go back to chapter one, verse seven. And we see John use the same term, behold. We don't use that word very often, but it has some pretty important meaning. Um, behold means to adjust your focus. And if you look at it in the tense that it's used here, for you English grammar majors, aorist, active, imperative, it means when you pull all these three things together, um, that the action the verb is describing is the result of something that happened in the past. And it gives rise to action that we're commanded to take in the present. So this behold is linking together a continuous thought. He says, there's a door standing open in heaven. Have we seen that before in our study? Revelation chapter three, verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you what? An open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and you have, and yet you have kept my word and have not, not denied my name. This is a picture, by the way, of access and fellowship, an open door leading into the throne room. Remember, when we looked at the, 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 uh, the drawing of the tabernacle, what divided um, the holy place and the holy of holies, remember? The veil, which was, when Jesus died, rent in two, a seamless piece of fabric torn right down the middle. This is a picture of the open door of an invitation for access and fellowship. Again, who's this written to? <clears throat> this is written to the church, where the church is, plural. Um. Ezekiel chapter one in the 13th year or the 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the, the Kibar canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God 
Ezekiel's vision, just like Isaiah's, is going to be very closely linked to John's vision. They're almost the same. And we'll look back at them later on, but they're, they are closely tied together. And what you see here is God parting the curtain for these men to see into the throne room. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing uh, at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 10. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw what? The heavens open. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now, in every one of these scenarios, what's happening? Why does God open the heavens in these examples? Why? Because he is revealing incredibly important truth. Well, how so? Well, Ezekiel 1 is a parallel picture of what we're looking at in John. And in verse 28 of Ezekiel 1, it says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. God is revealing who he is and his nature and his character to Ezekiel. He opens the curtain for Ezekiel. In Matthew 3, he is revealing to those that were present with Jesus as the heavens were open. What did he say when Jesus saw the heavens open and a dove descended, the Spirit of God descending like a dove? Do you remember the audible voice? That was not for Jesus' benefit. What was the declaration of truth from heaven? As Jesus looked into heaven, remember what it was? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Is that important truth? Vital. There's one mediator between man and God. Acts 7. Stephen, as he is being stoned, is telling the people that he, he is being stoned by. I see heaven opened up. And at the right hand of the Father is Jesus. What does that tell the men that are throwing stones at him? Your stones are right on point. Everything that you are doing is sovereignly ruled by Christ. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is being taught about the cleansing, redemptive work of Christ. Because what is that vision in, in Acts chapter 10 all about? He's called to, to Cornelius's house, who is, by the way, a Gentile. He's what? He's an eagle. He's unclean. Peter is being taught about the redemptive work of Christ. And what God says to Peter is Peter, he tells Peter, take and eat. And there's all these nasty animals in this blanket. And Peter says, Lord, not so. These are unclean. I've never eaten any of this stuff. Bacon, don't know what it tastes like. Because it's unclean. And the Lord doesn't say, Peter, it's all in how you cook it. He says, Peter, what I have cleansed, don't call common or unclean. What was he signifying to Peter? That the gospel was to go to who? The Gentiles. The people that Peter would not associate with. His ministry was to the Jews. Whenever God opens heaven, he's imparting immense, important truth. And our text continues, in the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. We remember from chapter one what this was all about. The trumpet here is pictured as the shofar, the ram's horn. And we looked at detail. I won't take time on it this morning. But if you look at chapter one, verse 10. John says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And we see the word like used multiple times because it's 
it is taking a difficult concept to understand and illustrating it for us for our understanding. So what was the trumpet? Well, in Old Testament times, the trumpet was used to summon people together. It was to make a public announcement. Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Um, in Numbers 31, the trumpet was used to sound the war alarm. In 2 Kings 11, verse 14, the trumpet is used to announce and rejoice in the king's presence. In Ezra chapter 3, in verse 10, we find that the trumpet is used to praise the Lord after significant moments, like the builders laying the foundation of the temple of the Lord. So the point of the trumpet is not today is another normal day, right? You with me? If you hear the trumpet, something important is about to happen. And so when John says, I hear a trumpet, what he's telling us is what I'm about to be told is incredibly important. And like chapter one, here is a high definition audio visual to remind us to listen, to sit up straight, to pay attention, that this is a prophetic and an authoritative declaration of the King of Kings. And at this point, <clears throat> remember, where is John while all this is happening? Anybody? It's not a trick question. Where's John physically? Patmos, yes. He is on the island of Patmos. And on an ordinary day, he's probably thinking about what are they going to bring me for lunch in my cell? Well, he's not thinking about that now. He's not thinking about where he is located physically. John's in another place. In the second part of verse one, it says, come up here and I will show you what, may, what must take place <clears throat> after this. So what do we make of that statement? Come up here. Well, to come up here is to not be there. There's a difference. And I think it's important for us to understand that when God is calling him from here to there, there is a calling apart. There is a difference. There is a holy apartness from the norm. In Exodus chapter 19, we find this with Moses on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountains while Moses went where? Up to God. The Lord called him, called to him out of the mountain saying, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob. So there is a picture here with the open door that the church is inviting. The church is welcomed. But make no mistake, this is not up there the same as it is here. This place is holy, sacred, set apart. And we look in verse um, 8 further down. We will not get there today, but the one characteristic of God that is defined as his superlative is what? What is the characteristic of God that tempers everything that he does? Holy, holy, holy. His grace could not be pure. His love could not be pure. His justice could not be right. His mercy could not be pure if it were not for holy, holy, holy. And so when God calls John up, come up to see, this is not, this is not the norm. This is not just an everyday walk in the park. Verse two says, at once I was in the spirit. Now I want you to see there's four times in the book of Revelation where this statement is used. We saw it once. Remember Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. That's the first occasion. Revelation 4.2 is the second occasion. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. <clears throat> Excuse me. Revelation 17 
verse three. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, and then seven heads and ten horns. And then the fourth time is in Revelation 21.10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is... This is not a new revelation, but rather a shifting of the scene. And that's what's being communicated to us. In Revelation 1.10, and we talked about this in detail back then. I'm not going to dig into it now. Um, but when he talks about being in the spirit on the Lord's day, it's the word pneuma in the Greek. This is the spirit of God. This is to clarify the Holy Spirit, not the Akartharch. Akatharton pneuma or an unclean spirit. John in Revelation 1 is in a holy preoccupation on the Lord's Day when he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. This is also, by the way, a mirror experience that was given to Ezekiel, who was sent to warn Israel of their rebellion. In Ezekiel chapter 3, he says this, verse 12, then the spirit lifted me up and I heard a I heard behind me the voice of a great multitude or a great earthquake. Blessed be the Lord God or the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living cherubim and seraphim. Um, it was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another and the sound of the wheels beside them and the sound of the great earthquake. He finishes by saying a spirit lifted me up or the spirit lifted me up and took me away. What John is, is doing here or seeing here, experiencing here is a sovereign operation of the spirit of God to impart the writing of scripture. This is, let's just be clear here. This is not the normative Christian experience. You are not failing in your fellowship with the Lord daily. If you are not caught up into heaven in your spirit. Do I need to say that again? This is not normative. This is God revealing and declaring truth to his servants, who, by the way, was told to do what with what he saw? Write it down. Okay, so this is God imparting truth. And we continue in our text. And behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. What do we see again the second time here in the text? The use of the word what? Behold, behold, look, adjust your focus, a throne with one seated on it. Here is truth that we need to settle on in our minds. A throne stands over and outside of time. Circumstances are dictated by the throne, not vice versa. Rest in this, in this truth, in this reality. God is sovereign. He's ruling right now. That should be a comfort to us. Um, I found a tidbit, a nugget that I wanted to share with you. Calvin, on his commentary on the Psalms, makes five observations. And I don't know that Calvin always did five observations, right? But in this case, he did five. I don't know where he gets five from. But he makes these five observations regarding God's throne and his providential rule. Number one, God's power governs the world. It governs it. He says, quote, he gives to us to understand by this word that heaven is not a palace in which God remains idle. Now think about something. Have you ever heard God characterized that way? The man upstairs. Um, you know essentially the old man in the sky. <clears throat> He's sitting there passively while history plays out with being applied there. Calvin says, heaven is not a palace in which God remains idle and indulges his pleasures as the Epicureans dream, but a royal court from which he exercises his government over all parts of the world. If he has erected his throne, therefore, in the sanctuary of heaven, in order to govern the universe, it follows that he is he in no wise neglects the affairs of earth, but governs them with the highest reason. I guess it was um, 
theism, I think, uh, Thomas Jefferson, I believe, was a theist who essentially believed God sets the wheels in motion and then steps back. Not what scripture teaches. <clears throat> Not what, what scripture teaches at all. Secondly, all worship or all should worship God as God. Quote, as God by his providence preserves the world, the power of his government is alike extended to all so that he ought to be worshipped by all. So why does not everyone worship God as God? Well, Romans 1 tells us that, doesn't it? Third thing he points out about God's governance is that God in his providence governs believers as a father. Excuse me. Whereas the, the point I just made is talking about common grace. God is kind to all humanity. He owes humanity not a thing, but we see um, what's, what is referred to as common grace demonstrated in creation. But specifically for the believer, he governs as a father. He says this, quote, by the face of God must be meant the fatherly care and providence which he extends to his people. So numerous are the dangers which surround us that we could not stand a single moment if his eye did not watch over our preservation. But the true security for a happy life lies in being persuaded. Listen to this. The true security for a happy life lies in being persuaded that we are under divine government. This fatherly care of God does not mean that his people will not suffer. We are here warned that the guardianship of God does not secure us from being sometimes exercised with the cross and afflictions. And that therefore the faithful ought not to promise themselves a delicate and easy life in this world. It being enough for them not to be abandoned by God when they stand in need of his help. Their heavenly father, it is true, loves them most tenderly, but he will have them awakened by the cross lest they should give themselves too much to the pleasures of the flesh. If, therefore, we embrace this doctrine, although we may happen to be oppressed by the tyranny of the wicked, we will wait patiently till God either breaks their scepter or shakes it out of their hand. What is he saying? God graciously governs his people as a father, and he's incredibly kind, but he does not promise us that we will have a life free of oppression or affliction. What does he promise? What does he promise us? As he told his disciples, he would be with them. That's his promise. Fourth, he says our confidence in God's providence empowers us to live for him. Besides, quote, the joy here mentioned arises from this. There's nothing more calculated to increase our faith in the knowledge of the providence of God, because without it, we would be harassed with doubts and fears, being uncertain whether or not the world was governed by chance. For this reason, it follows that those who aim at the subversion of this doctrine, depriving the children of God of true comfort, vexing their minds by unsettling their faith, forge for themselves a hell upon earth. For what can be more awfully tormenting than to be constantly racked with doubt and anxiety, and we will never be able to arrive at a calm state of mind and to be taught to repose with implicit confidence in the providence of God. Do you ever worry? Do you ever wrestle with worry? There's only one person shaking their head, so this message only applies to Mr. Taylor. <laughs> Nobody else needs to worry about this. Okay. We all do. We all do. What is worry? It's not trusting God. It's not trusting in his providence. And, and we, we talk about the providence of God as, as this nebulous thing. No, what, what he's communicating here is that the providence of God is specific to you, his child. And I love how he finishes this. The fifth thing that he says about God's providence is that it leads us to prayer. Right? God not only ordains the ends, he ordains what? The means. Quote, 
were they to reflect on the judgments of God, they would at once perceive that there was nothing like chance or fortune in the government of the world. If you ever use the word luck, you got lucky, throw it out. It doesn't belong in the Christian's vocabulary. There's no such thing as luck or chance. That's why I would never play the lottery. You ever thought about that? God says we're to make our living how? How do we how do we as Christians earn a living? Work. So go play the lottery. No, because if you if you believe there is such a thing as luck or chance, then I would play the lottery, but I don't. If I went and spent all my money on a lottery, knowing that I'm in disobedience to God because he says go work for it, he's not gonna bless me by winning the lottery. My point is, is that luck or chance don't belong in our vocabulary. But he says this. Nothing like chance or fortune in the government of the world. Moreover, until men are persuaded, listen to this, until men are persuaded that all their troubles come upon them by the appointment of God, it will never come into their minds to supplicate him for deliverance. What is he saying in old English language? Until we get the fact that everything that comes down our path that tries us, that is challenging to us, that is troubling to us, comes ultimately from the hand of God. You say, well, God didn't tempt me, Satan did. That's true. But is God sovereign over the tempting work of Satan? Is God sovereign over Satan trying to sabotage your life? Is he? Or are we a victim of that? God is sovereign over that. If we see that, if we believe that all things come from the hand of God, where do we go? Look at the picture here. Here's the throne of God. He is ruling. He is sovereign. Everything that comes into our life, though it seems like chaos, so it seems like disconnectedness is all managed and dictated by the decree and the sovereign providence of God. Who do we go to for help? If we truly believe, if that is all true, who do we go to for help? Go to the one who is trying us, who is testing us. God's providence leads us to prayer because we believe that he has ordained the ends as well as the means. Say, well, that's great commentary by John Calvin, but what does that got to do with it? Well, look at what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near where? To throne grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church family, we need to understand that the throne of grace is not something that we should dread. For the wicked, it will be a throne of judgment. We'll see that clearly through the book of Revelation, and it's real. But for the believer, it's not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace, and we are to approach it how? How are we to approach it? What does he tell us here? We know we're not holy. So how do we approach it? And it's not just approaching it, but we're to approach it how? Help me out. I want to see if somebody's awake. What is the word? How are we to approach the throne? Boldly. It's not talking about arrogantly. But why? We have the absolute confidence in what Christ has done for us. It is holy confidence. We with confidence draw near the, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. One of Satan's biggest lies for you and I is you are a filthy, rotten sinner and you have no business going to the throne of God. How many times do we believe that? Over and over and over. We cut ourselves off from the very help that we need because we're listening to that lie. Yes, we're not holy. Yes, we're wicked. But yes, because of Christ, 
we come with boldness because we have his holiness. Point number three. We're going to close in just a minute. We have a picture of, or point number three is on the throne, an unpainable picture. John tells us in verse three, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We will notice here that unlike the angels, we read a little further. We'll get to that next week. We see a picture of the cherubim and the seraphim. And what do we see about them? There's a big description of them, isn't there? What don't we see here in John's vision? John doesn't give us a whole lot here, does he? How do you describe the undescribable? John, paint a picture of what you can't describe. We'll notice here that the very description given regarding the one who sits on the throne, God is uncreated. How do you define or describe the uncreated one with something that is created? How do you do that? There's nothing in creation that can truly describe God. So John doesn't, he doesn't use much here. He gives us, he says, um, Jasper, Carnelian, emerald, like a rainbow. John uses the rarest of things to describe the indescribable. There's nothing common here about the description of God. I want you to hear what Dennis Johnson writes on this in his commentary on the book of Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb. He says, quote, even in the mode of prophetic vision, which conveys its truth visually, John's description of the appearance of the one on the throne is restrained. Offering nothing that could be turned into a forbidden image. What would we do if there was a picture painted here of God? Well, surely we'd make an image. He says, the picture of the appearance of the one on the throne is restrained, offering nothing that can be turned into a forbidden image. Through John's eyes, we see no features, but only color and texture, right? Do you see that? It's conveyed in a simile, quote, like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. The name jasper was applied to a variety of precious stones in the ancient world, ranging in color from reddish through amber to green, and from opaque to translucent. From the comparison of the radiance of, of the New Jerusalem to crystal clear jasper in Revelation 21.11, we can infer that John's readers would have pictured a stone through which light shines, perhaps the precious green. Sardius, also known as carnelian, is a reddish stone that also appears among the 12 foundation stones in the New Jerusalem. That's all we're given. And we're not... You know, there are people that try to imply all sorts of meaning by the different type of the stone. What is being conveyed here? These, they're precious. They're rare. They're incomparable, right? You can't, you can't define him in a picture. He's a spirit. Here, Moses is warning in Deuteronomy chapter four. I promise we're almost done. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of an animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. What is, what is Moses saying? That innately man in his sinfulness will take the uncreated one and try and compare him to what is created. That's what we do. That's what idolatry is, to take the uncreated one, the creator, and bring him down to what is created or equal with us. That's what Romans 1 tells us, doesn't it? <clears throat> they did not 
like to retain God in their knowledge. So they worship the creature instead of the creator. The picture of the throne and the one on it should remind us of his sovereign rule and holy apartness. There is nothing like him, but yet we are commanded to be holy like him. How does that work? Last reference for you this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. If we are completely unlike him, and he is holy, 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 and he has given us a command to be holy like he is, how does that work? How does that work? You say, well, I'm doing my best. Guess what? It doesn't cut it. Our best at being like him, it's not good enough. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Hint number one, grace. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the, the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Does our holiness matter? Does it matter? Well, Scripture says without holiness, what? No man will see God. How do we go into the throne room as wicked, vile sinners? Something something has to change. Well, it's grace. The command to be holy for us can't be obeyed in its fulfillment, in its totality, can it? Can we be holy? Not by ourselves, not in ourselves, but our holiness is through Christ. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He directly links holiness to the precious blood of Christ, who was without blemish and spot. And as we move into chapter five, we will see the lamb clearly pictured. The only way to go through the door and access to the throne room is through the blood of the lamb. That's it. There is no other way. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, look at verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. From a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We talked this morning about David's last days. David, in all of his kingly glory, died. Every one of us, and and most of us can recount the days of our youth when we were strong, when we were young, when we were fast, when we were athletic, at least most of us, and those days are gone. Guess what? The flower is fading. The grass is withering. We will die. We will grow old and die. God's word will abide forever. And God says, "Be, be ye holy. You say, but I can't be holy. And the answer is simply no, you can't be, not without the precious blood of Christ. And the question for us this morning is, are we covered in the blood of Christ? That's the question. Am I holy because of what he has done on my behalf? That's where our imputed righteousness and holiness comes from, 
The only way I, I can obey the command of God to be holy is if I am found in Christ. And then I can completely and perfectly obey. When the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he will say that of you and I, if we are in Christ. Do you realize that? If we're in Christ, he will say to you, well done, my beloved servant. I'm well pleased with you because we're in Christ. As we close this morning, I want to share a hymn with you that has moved up my favorite list. And it's written in the context of this passage. And it was written by a woman by the name of Charity Lee Smith in 1863. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. And it says this, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can ever or can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have an invitation to come into your presence, to come before the very God of all the universe, and know, Father, that we have a great high priest who was tempted in every point like we are, and yet without sin. Father, we freely confess to you that in and of ourselves, we have no holiness, we have no righteousness, we have nothing that would appeal to the three times holy triune God, but the work of our Savior. Father, I ask that for this church, you would help us to see that every, every circumstance that comes into our life is ordained and governed and ruled by your wise providence. And Father, that, that with that comes crosses, comes afflictions, comes trials, and all of those things are to drive us to you. Help us to not believe the lie from the enemy that says we are not worthy to stand in your presence. We rest in the finished work of Christ and his righteousness this morning. We thank you for our time together. In your name we pray. Amen.